Hey there, and welcome to the Craftish Podcast, episode number 30. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is sponsored by Makers Mercantile. Makers Mercantile is a space for fueling your creativity, inspiring you to make using any medium that you feel passionate about. And now is a great time to pick up those last minute gifts for the holidays. And as a sincere thank you for a wonderful year, Makers Mercantile is offering US Craftish listeners free shipping until the end of the year with code Vicky Makes. And I spell that V I C K I E. So use Vicky Makes at checkout when you shop at makersmercantile.com. This week's episode is actually the last one of the 2016 season. And over the past 29 episodes, I've had the absolute honor and pleasure of talking with creative types ranging from artists and professional crafters to photographers and musicians. I've learned something from each and every conversation, but there have been a handful that have really stuck with me. Exchanges with guests who are both generous of spirit and thoughtful in mind. Their openness underlying the very reason I wanted to produce this podcast in the first place. Well, in part, it's to feed my own curiosity about people and what makes them, well, them. But outside of my own satiation, I hope that this show inspires thought and creativity amongst a community that I truly love being a part of. For me, communication is the ultimate form of creativity. All that to say, today's episode is one of those that I won't soon forget. Earlier this week, I spoke with graphic designer, illustrator, and educator, Andrea Pippins. At the time of this recording, we are a little over four weeks away from the inauguration of an almost infamous new president. For ultimate better or worse, to say that our American society is currently experiencing a period of unrest is probably an understatement. So she and I took this meeting as an opportunity to have a very candid conversation about race, education, gender, and the power of creativity during times of personal or global insecurity. Andrea Pippins, thank you so much for coming on Craftish. Thank you so much for having me, Vicki. I wanted to start with a quote from an interview that you did on a blog, um, on Lisa Congdon's blog. She's a fellow illustrator, a very well-known illustrator uh, recently, where you say, my vision is to empower women and girls of color and people in marginalized communities with visual tools to own and tell their stories, helping them understand that they get to dictate who they are and what they want to do, and that the power is believing that truth. Would you talk a little bit about how you see creativity empowering these groups that you spoke of there? Mm. Well, you know, I, I really have to start with myself because the, the way that I even got to that vision was through my own experiences as a young woman of color Um, looking for information, looking for resources on how I could use my own creativity to pursue a certain career path or even just, you know, tell my story. And also just being hungry for other stories and, you know, looking for that information and reflections of myself and not being able to find them. And I feel that creativity really allows people to, you know, embrace who they are, you know, self-expression, taking moments to just sitting down, excuse me, drawing, writing, thinking about who you are and not letting the outside world kind of dictate that. 
And when you take that time to really, to really engage in those opportunities, you really start to think, oh, this is, this is who I am and this is who I want to be. And I don't think that a, a lot of times in those communities, those things are encouraged or seen as, as opportunities to really, I guess, again, embrace who you are. So my work is all about giving those tools to those communities to do so. And why do you think those opportunities don't present themselves? Just oh, the realism of situations and priorities? Yes. Well, for me, you know, I grew up, my, my mom is um, an immigrant. My mom's from Brazil and my dad is African-American. And in both communities, it, you know, pursuing a career in the arts was just a luxury. And my parents were very supportive. They, they saw that I loved to be creative that I wanted to go into graphic design and they didn't really understand what that meant, but they, they supported it. Um, which for me, that was, you know, I was fortunate because they were like spending money on school and, you know, college and tuition and everything. Um, but typically in our communities, it's not encouraged because it's not seen as a way to, it's not practical. It's not seen as a way to, you know, make money, uh, to have a, to be able to buy a home and support a family and even my mom, she wanted me to be a doctor because she felt like that was that was the career path that you can you know be able to take care of yourself. And that's that's really all she wanted for me was to know that she could go on and I would be okay because I had this you know secure job. Was she interested in medicine herself? You know, she wasn't, but she was interested in becoming a lawyer. Mm. Um, but my goodness, so. You know, I, I saw and I hear that a lot from when I was blogging, when I was teaching, you know, a lot of my students, they would say, oh, you know, my parents don't support this, but I just had to do it. Or I would get emails from readers saying, you know, I, I went to school to be a lawyer, but I really am passionate about becoming a writer. How do I tell my parents that I, I don't want to pursue this other career path anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, it happens across the board, but particularly in minority communities where, you know, it's a child, it's their first time going to, or the first The generation. first graduate, yeah. Yeah, going That's to school. That's a lot school. of weight. It's a lot of weight. Yeah. A lot of pressure. And you're expected to, you know, be successful. And being an artist, you know, there's that whole myth of the starving artist is not seen as a, a viable or successful career path. So you're expected as the first generation of college educated family members to also be the first under whose definition, I don't know, but quote unquote successful person of that line as well. I hadn't looked at it like that before. Interesting. Yeah. So wow. (laughs) And, And so, especially when, you know, unless you were born in the last 20 years, you didn't have, there weren't all of these sort of like visual cues of success for artists and artisans because the internet wasn't, wasn't a thing mainstream. So there weren't, that wasn't modeled for parents to see. Exactly. Exactly. And they, you know, the promoted idea of, you know, you're just going to live in a studio and starve to death and become famous when you die Like that's, those are the stories that they hear. Um, But the funny thing is my mom, my mom has always modeled the idea of being an entrepreneur and being creative. So my early years, the first four years of my life were spent in a sewing studio. Mm -hmm. 
And she was, um, she was one of the dressmakers, I think one of four, it changed from time to time, but it was owned by a French woman and it was in, in Georgetown, a neighborhood in DC. And I was there every day with, with them, just watching them. sew, watching women come in and out of the space and they're trying on these beautiful clothes that, you know, my mom made that the other women made. And I was just surrounded by all this amazing creativity and these women who some of them went off, including my mom, to start their own little studios. So it's so interesting that my Design mom, studios? Yeah, my mom had her own sewing studio in, in the basement of our home for like, I don't know, it was five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was, you know, making and altering wedding dresses and different kinds of clothes for all kinds of events. So is she sketching these out at this point or is she working off existing patterns and people are hiring her as a sewist or a combination of both? A combination. So she wasn't really a sketcher. She, she knew how to make patterns or she would build patterns from an existing pattern, but, um, she, she was super talented and it's just amazing to me that you know, that didn't influence me in terms of going into fashion. Cause I really love seeing her create, but, um, but what yeah, you that's, did, that's but, like, uh, but you did start drawing while you were sitting on those studio floors as a way to entertain yourself. And I, I mean, those two are definitely linked. Don't you, do you think that she saw in you at all that you could sort of take what was in her mind? I mean, not that you were at, you know, two years old drawing out, the, you know, the next great dress, but do you yeah, think yeah. that there was a fluidity <laughs> between you two at that point even? Absolutely, for sure. Because I, there were times where I did draw little outfits that I wanted to wear, and she would make them for me. Oh, I love that. So, any anything from like a Halloween costume to like I remember, I wish I could remember which birthday it was. I think it was when I was turning eight or nine. I made this this I drew this little tiny like jumpsuit outfit, and it was. I see the pictures now. I'm like, that's super cute, but she, she made it, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was typical eighties outfit, but, um, I love that she, you know, she never, she encouraged it. You know, she never said, I don't have time for that. She was like, Oh, this is really great. Let me try and, and see if, if I can make it. And she did. So she modeled, so she modeled there. That's interesting. So even though maybe, a sewing studio isn't necessarily in the category of of fine art. The the actual essence, like artist essence, was there only because of the sort of communication between the two of you and the and mm-hmm. and how you both expressed your own creativity, um, sort of blooming in the same room. Yeah, for sure. I, I I think it's an example of how you know your parent or kids take in what they see more than what you say. Mm. So she might've said here and there, or like giving me toys that related to becoming a doctor, but you know, I'm seeing her create and I'm seeing all of her friends and the community that was surrounded us were people who were creatives. So for me, that was like that, that really encouraged me to continue on with the things that I was really interested in. Did you ever sew yourself? I did. Yeah. Um, so Miss Cody, the woman who owned the shop, she taught me how to crochet and she also taught me how to, um, just sew. I like do my, did my little tiny stitching <laughs> there in that space. Um, 
so after that, like I, I feel very comfortable with the sewing machine. I don't know that I could make an outfit, but like if it was something simple, like hemming a dress or something like that, I could definitely do it. You said uh, in the same interview that I referenced before that when you were a teenager, you were so hungry for information about art and looking for guidance to explore your creativity um, and that you, you know, at that point really loved art, but didn't have access to outlets um, for developing your skills. Mm-hmm. How, how did you fix that for yourself? You clearly did. You've created a, an amazing career for yourself. Did it start at that point? Did you actively search? No. Well, when I was in high school, that was when the internet first started to, to blossom and bloom. Um, and I would just, I would search things, but you know, it wasn't like Google didn't exist and it wasn't as easy to just gather information. Those were Ask Jeeves days. Yeah, exactly. Do you remember that? <laughs> <Yes>. I do. <laughs> I remember those commercials too. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to use that. I kind of miss um, that guy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he was a cute little caricature. This little tray. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, yeah, what happened to him? But yeah, th- those days, it was really just, you had to ask people and you had to go to the library and, and you know, talk to people to get information. But I remember there were two things that, that kind of planted seeds for me. And it was, one was the movie boomerang with Eddie Murphy and Halle Berry and Robin Givens. And they worked at this like huge luxury perfume brand and Halle Berry was an art director. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't have that name or that, that language then, but I saw this woman who's, she was a woman of color and she was making graphics and she was teaching on the weekend. She was teaching with um, some art workshops. And I was like, oh my gosh, this woman is doing things that you know I'm interested in. She was painting too in the film. So even though she was this fictional character, it planted a seed. I'm like, oh, this is something that exists. Like this, I believe that this movie was based on real ideas. And this is a, a role or a career path that exists. I think I was maybe 12 at the time. So it was a seed that's, that was planted, but I didn't really think about it beyond that until later. And then another thing that I saw, it was, um, do you remember Saturday morning cartoons? Mm-hmm. And they had this, it was like a little segment during a commercial break where they talked to different people who were just doing different kind of careers. And there was this woman, she was an art director at a magazine and I just remember seeing her, her workspace had all this, like these crayons and paintbrushes. And it was just like, oh my gosh, it's colorful. It's artsy. Maybe that's something that I can also pursue. So it wasn't until my senior year in high school, which is really, really late, where I'm like, oh, you know, I need to get ready for college. I need to think about a career path. I need to figure out what I'm going to do. And up until that point, I hadn't taken any art classes. Um, Excuse me. So that's when I started to talk to like an art teacher in high high school and started talking to different programs to figure out, you know, what is it that I need to do? How do I build my portfolio? How do I how do I get into these programs, especially without having any any experience in terms of, you know, the foundational skills that you need to be in an art program. 
So it really wasn't until college where I started to, like once I did get into an art program, that's when I really started to understand how to nurture my creativity, how to, you know, learn the formal skills. Um, and then also what is, what does it really mean to be a graphic, graphic designer or commercial artist? So it was really late for me and I struggled because of that, but it was, um, it was, you know, a learning time. I mean, really late. You're still, (laughs) you were still in your, you know, late teens, early twenties, right? Yeah. Isn't that so funny how we do that to ourselves? Oh my gosh. I I remember (laughs) dabbling with, you know, whether or not I wanted to become an actor, which, you know, I think clearly was never my path, but broadcaster was absolutely. And, and I remember, and I grew up in LA, so, you know, everybody was a child actor. So, Mm -hmm. you know, half of my friends would, you know, miss classes to go on auditions or whatever. And so when I decided that I wanted to at least give it a try, because it wasn't necessarily encouraged in my family either, I was, you know, maybe 18. And I was like, I'm washed up. I'm too old. Like, I can't do this. (laughs) And it's like, I just now, you know, I'm 43. And it's just like, hilarious. You know, I just, it's so hilarious. and then you see people like Steve Carell and, um, you know, there's, there's a ton of actors now who, who talk about how they didn't even like make it big, um, until they were in their forties, fifties. But I just felt so behind already. And I think that, yeah. I wonder if that wasn't generational also. I mean, now we weren't, we just didn't, we didn't know what was out there. We didn't know. Where we were, because there wasn't, you couldn't Google it, like you said earlier. That's so true. But when I look back at that, I think it's it's a blessing because when I, you know, I was teaching on a college level and I hear so much about the the pressures that high school students have, even middle school, where they're already being forced to think about what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. And it's just, it doesn't make any sense because when I I talk to the, the seniors, I'm like, you guys don't have to figure it all out right now. And if you did, it would be so boring because you still have like 50, 60 years left of your life to, to do and try different things. But because of that pressure so early on, yeah, you just, you you feel crazy. And I think so. it's actually a little bit worse now in that respect. You know, we've definitely talked about the benefits, but I think there's a, you know, I have a son, one of my eldest is, is a junior and they've now because they've changed the way that high schools work now you have to choose a path when you're in high school which seems Mm -hmm. crazy to me I mean I get it if you happen to be you know like you were it sounds like you were born into art you know like that was inherently Mm -hmm. in your spirit but if you're still investigating it's and my son he shuts down every time I try to talk to him about college and Mm. I was like dude you're a junior we should be talking about this but at the same time we I keep telling him you don't have to know exactly what you want to do just find something that you're even vaguely interested in right follow it like you've got this you've got this gift like you have you know, we, I share custody. So he's got four parents behind him like, mm. that are like, do, you do you, you know, and go with it. But I think that pressure to choose and know is also there. And maybe some of that is saddled with the fact that college tuition is now, I mean, doubled, tripled, quadrupled in some yes. cases, just That's, over the yep. past, you know, 20 years, that that weight has got to be even more you know, overbearing because there's a lot at stake. That's so true. It's so true. And I, I wish that could change because I think 
The beauty of going to college, the beauty of being in high school is getting to know who you are and trying different things. But even there's a lot of programs where freshman year, you have to know. And if you don't know, then you're in trouble because you've wasted a year and you got to take all these different courses and stay another year again, because, you know, you're starting that track as soon as you step in the door. So, yeah, I think it's, it's unfortunate, but like you said, there are some benefits too, because you are learning a lot of things early on. And I, I do wish that I had some more information. Like I said, in that interview that you referenced, um, just so I could just try different things before I even got into college or just talk to different people who were in these paths that I, I wanted to pursue or that I, were, I was considering. Um, but I had to figure everything out on my own. It would have been nice to just at least have someone to, to talk to if I had that information. Your latest book, Becoming Me, A Work in Progress, seems to explore or rather be an invitation for young women to explore some of some of the sort of like internal sort of conflicts and triumphs in your own sort of creative process. Was this was this sort of your gift to the next generation so that they can have a little bit of sort of help from within in finding their path? Yes, absolutely. Becoming Me is the book that I wish I had when I was a teenage girl, for sure. Because I think those, the, some of those questions I wish someone had asked me then, or even, even as a young adult, would have been helpful. Um, you know, this book really brings together a lot of things that I've learned as an educator, as a designer, as an artist, and, you know, puts it in a way that allows the person to not necessarily learn from my mistakes or my experiences, but allows them to kind of think about, again, who they are and what they want to do. How do they relate to these ideas, these prompts? Um, so it really goes within without me imposing anything from my experiences onto them. Well, what I like about it is that there's kind of a little something for every creative someone, you know, if you're mm-hmm. not necessarily... If illustration isn't necessarily your gig, there are lists. Um, If you're um, really into maybe just doodling, there are areas for doodling. There's places to finish in textures. If you just want to focus on sort of the zen of lines, you can work. Mm -hmm. You can work in, you know, lettering. You can really sort of just do you and find collage. If you just, you know, if none, if none of that works for you, you can just, you know, find ticket stubs and things that mean something. It's just little, a bunch of different prompts to kind of kickstart your own thinking. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was thinking. I, I try to find a, a huge range of exercises and activities, and I really wanted it, I, I wanted people to feel like you know, they don't necessarily have to want to be an artist or an illustrator or designer to have this book. I wanted just a space, a, a quiet, private space for someone to let their insides out. And that was it. So it wasn't something where they had to feel like, oh my gosh, this needs to be perfect, or I need to make this coloring look a certain way. It's just a, a, a again, a quiet space where people can feel comfortable to talk about how they feel, what's going on, what are some ideas that they have, whether it's for cooking 
or for a TV show. Um, it, you know, it doesn't matter what a person is doing or wants to pursue. It's just a, a really special place for them to let those ideas flow. You open up the book with a Maya Angelou quote that says, Mm -hmm. you can't use up creativity. The more you use, the more you have. Can you explore that idea a little bit? Because I think a lot of us, you know, have heard of or experienced ourselves some form of creative block. And Mm. so it doesn't always seem to feed. Can you talk a little bit about how, how you nurture your own creativity so that it flows and layers and, and ebbs and grows. Sure. Yes. You know, um, we all get to a point where I I think the problem is just actually sitting down and doing the work. And that's something that I struggle with, you know, making the time to do the work and nurturing your interest, nurturing things that you want to create. And the trick is just doing it right. So looking for inspiration, writing down ideas, putting pen to paper. I think that is the most important thing in terms of getting into the flow. And then once you're in the flow, more things start to happen, more things Mm -hmm. start to open up. And it's hard to see that when you don't actually sit down and do it. You just feel like, oh my gosh, you know, I I don't really know what I want to do. I don't know what I want to say. I don't have the time for it. But I think it's important, especially in this day and age where we're so busy and so distracted. It's just to make that time to sit down and do something, start something, because that is the only way that it's going to come out. And then you, you, you'll see when it comes out, there's just more that just keeps coming. Do you ever find yourself working on you know, just sort of letting that creative flow happen and unintentionally your mind traveling to a place that you didn't even really know needed to be open? Mm. Yes. But you know what? It hasn't happened. That hasn't happened in a while. Um, When I was working on my first book, I Love My Hair, my uh, coloring book, because I was, I, I did that book in 60 days. I, I literally oh, had wow. to draw that book every page. Um, so 84 pages in 60 days. Why such the tight turnaround? We were trying to get it done before the holiday season. So okay. 2015 was like the big coloring, yeah, adult yeah, yeah. coloring book okay. boom. So um, we were trying to get it done. And my deadline, like I signed the contract in June. My deadline was September, or no, the end of August. Um, so yeah, two, two months and being in that flow, like constantly working every day for 60 days, I was like listening to different things that were inspiring me. I lit candles, I had incense going and there, there were things that would pop into my mind or I'm like, Oh, that, you know, I didn't know that about myself or, um, just, you know, different ideas. And then I would journal. So it was a really therapeutic time for me. But yeah, that hasn't, I haven't been able to work in that kind of flow since then. So do you think there's a relation to creativity and flow to an openness of the mind and whether between, you know, whether it's, you know, insights about yourself or just being open to hearing other people's thoughts, ideas, issues? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I would love to say it's the case for everyone, but you know, I can only speak for myself. For me, it's a form of therapy. It's a form of meditation. 
when I'm in that flow and it's, it's like a prayer. So I feel like when I'm in that, that space, it just allows me to be fully who I am. And I'm, I feel like I'm able to take in information and it's also expressed. So it's like this, this flow of in and out, um, fairly easily. I've been playing around a bit myself with the idea of encouraging people to be creative just because it's good for the soul, but also I really feel like it's really great for the community that if we're working on something solitarily, we can be insightful. And if we work on something in groups, it gives us sort of a safe space to be doing something that we have in common, but then an openness to discuss Mm-hmm. differences. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you, we could talk a little bit about creativity and its place during times of unrest. And mm-hmm. to do so, I'd love to start by asking you if you would read a blog post that you wrote on November 16th. Absolutely. So the title of this post is, uh, I refuse to feel powerless. And I should stop and say, for those that are not listening, um, in the U S, uh, this was eight days or so after our most recent presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, so I start with the question, how are you all feeling? I feel confused, unaligned and distracted. During this time, it is easy to feel powerless, defeated, and anxious, and most of all, fearful. But don't be distracted by the fear. I refuse to be fearful. I refuse to feel powerless. After we feel our feelings, after the shock and grief, after the dust settles a bit, I hope that we can take a moment to remember the light within us all, to keep going, and to focus on what can be done. We can always be uplifting. We can organize and initiate. We can activate. We can create, we can speak, write, design, teach, demonstrate, listen, talk, help, hug, cry, pray, serve. There is always something we can do. Every single little action counts. So again, after the shock, after the grief, please remember we are are never powerless. We have the power to decide how to move forward in fear or in love. This, as I said, was about eight days after the election. Did it take, was there a process for you to get to a place where you could put that so eloquently into words? Well, I was, I would say no. Um, I was thinking a lot, but I was on the road. I was uh, on a book tour slash road trip for Becoming Me. And I think that was the first moment where I felt like I was in a, a place where I could just sit down and write and, um, it just came out. Yeah. So, you know, being on the road, it was like really hectic and, and, and busy and being in the car. So that was, I think a moment where I was just sitting in a hotel room. Like I, I felt the need to, to share that and, and, and encourage others. Cause I was seeing so many posts from people who were feeling devastated and powerless and, um, depressed. And I just want to, other people to feel that they're never that. And in a lot, in a lot of ways, the media, um, people around us make us feel that way. And it's never true. 
Would you mind talking a little bit about some of that like devastation, like what those feelings were? And I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Sure. Well, you know, for me, I, I wasn't devastated. Um, I, I was expecting it because, again, I was really? on a road trip. Yeah, I, I actually... Why were you expecting it? Because, so, before I left my road trip, so my, my I left for Detroit. That was my first stop on October 24th. And before then, I was, I felt pretty confident that um, Hillary Clinton was going to win. It's like, oh, this, you know, that that's in the bag. But then as we're driving, so it was my partner and I, so he and I were, you know, driving across the country and we're driving through Ohio and Michigan and Indiana. And we only saw Trump signs. Really? We went through 22 states and we only saw Trump signs. And for us, we were like, oh, he's going to win. This is, this is. It, it was so evident and clear. And then on top of that, to see there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of sadness. Like we would stop in these small towns for, you know, a break restroom break or, um, gas, get food. And you just saw a lot of, we, we saw a lot of people who just seemed down and out. And we just knew we were like, this is, this is the way that it's going to go. And I can't say, I mean, when it was official, it was like, wow, this is for real. But I, I didn't feel the devastation that a lot of people felt because I, I just, I knew, I felt like I, I saw it. I saw the, the signs that this is the way that it was going to go. We did not see one poster, nothing in favor of Clinton. As a person of color and also a woman, did you feel supported by either candidate? Wow. Um, no. Interesting. I didn't. Um, Not as a I, woman from a female candidate, even. I felt that there, there was a lot of um, talk and, I guess, support of, of, in terms of women's issues that I agree with and with um, Clinton. But there were, there were groups that were being ignored. And I, I felt like going through the country and seeing that, even, even if these are groups that don't necessarily support who I am or my interests. Like what groups, for example? Um, definitely. I mean, you hear them talking about it now, but just like the, the Rust Belt, you know, these are are groups who felt like they were completely ignored by the quote unquote democratic elite. And when Hillary Clinton had that, um, event where it was like Beyonce and Jay-Z. I was like, Oh, that's really a a mistake because that's not the space that we're in right now. That's not what the country needs to see. So I I felt like that, that was a clear sign that this is, there's like a disconnect. Um, Because of the sort of elitism that they represent? The, I just, I guess just the, there was just this, this, this disconnect on what, regular everyday people need to see. And I even have to admit that, you know, I, I was living in a bubble going across the country and seeing what I saw and, you know, being from the East coast, going back and forth between Europe and here and, you know, being an artist and having very liberal ideas within my very liberal communities. I really didn't think about, Oh, there are other people who think differently, but who are also struggling 
who are also, you know, living in like devastation in different ways. So I just felt like after seeing that experience or having that experience that there are these, these issues that aren't being addressed. Um, but you know, how do you, I, I didn't feel like both candidates really thought about how to really address them. One spoke to the, to the groups in a way that, you know, they needed to hear, but d- didn't really offer any resolution. And then the other one I felt really just kind of ignored some, some of those groups. So I think that's why it ended up the way that it did. As again, a woman, an African-American and the daughter of an immigrant, mm-hmm. there's a lot at stake for you personally under the new administration. For sure. How are you absorbing that? And, and what, what, if any, sort of calls to action has it awakened within you? Oh, man. <laughs> I, I've been feeling, what I've really been feeling is I need to just, okay, so there's two different things here. So in terms of my community, I've been feeling like I need to do more work in terms of empowering people because we, I think sometimes we focus so much on what, government can do what these higher level people, elected officials can do where we forget that, you know, as individuals, as people within our tight knit communities, what can we do to uplift and create safe spaces for us? So I've been thinking about, you know, what does it mean to build? What does it mean to use art and design my skills, you know, as an artist, as a designer to give people what they need in order to build? So that's something that I've been talking a lot about with my fellow uh, designer artist friends. <clears throat> so there's that. But then on a very personal level, I think I'm thinking about, OK, well, you know, what does this mean for my relationship? Because my partner is Swedish and um, that was a whole that's another level, man. <laughs> this yeah. one's big. <laughs> So, you know, I'm not, I'm not worried about my mom. My mom, yes, she's an immigrant, but she has her citizenship, thank God. Um, But, you know, what does that mean for family members who might want to come over? But then my partner, he's Swedish, but he's also half Libyan and his, um, he has a very Arabic last name. And what is that going to mean when he wants to come over? Like he, he doesn't look Swedish. He looks like a black or North African man and he could very much be profiled Mm -hmm. and is that going to be an issue for him you know coming over or or migrating here so um does it have you looking differently it's like thinking about yourself immigrating to sweden for sure yeah we we're you know like in the talks of (laughs) forget how to what do we do you know is it just easier for me to go there. Um, but you know, we have a family, we definitely want the flexibility of being able to go back and forth. Yeah. So it's, there are a lot of questions and it, it definitely concerns me for sure, because I, from, you know, racial profiling to laws being changed, you know, green card issues happening, you know, it, it definitely leaves a lot up in the air. When you were traveling on your book tour with your partner, was did you experience any racial profiling already here? No, we didn't. But we had 
we had a protocol. I say already, like this is a new thing. That's not what I meant. Um, I hope you know what I meant, what I intended. No, I, I, I understand. But we, um, we actually, cause you know, there's, there's been a lot, a lot of shootings, a lot of, um, yeah. instances with police officers and we were like, okay, you know, we're going to be on the road. We need to have some kind of system. So you think protocol. about it getting in the car. Like this is, I mean, absolutely. <sighs> oh yeah. Um, more so because we were going like, you know, we feel safer, even though it's on a lot of levels, it's an artificial feeling of being safe in your own community. But, um, when you're driving across the country, going to States, you don't know, you know, you don't know people. There's sometimes you're just driving for hours without seeing anyone. We're thinking, okay, well, what, what are some things that we need to do to make sure that we are safe? And it was a really sad thing to have to think about, like any mistake and God forbid one of us could, you know, be hurt or killed. Yeah. So we had a plan. We're like, okay, we need to have all of our documents in a plastic bag, easily accessible in the glove compartment. And this is what we're going to do. If we're stopped, we're going to have our hands here and, um, we have to make sure that our, you know, headlights, taillights, brake lights, everything is working. And if, if we, that's, if we have to drive at night too, cause we were trying to avoid driving at night at all. And there were parts of the country where we were, were you like, trying to we, avoid driving at night at all because you prefer not to drive at night or because you thought that like, this was part of your sort of like safe plan. That's our safe plan. That was part of our safe plan for sure. We were thinking if we're driving at night, we're probably going to be more likely stopped. Um, so just, you know, avoiding night driving. And then there were parts of the country where we're like, we don't need to, we need to make sure that we're driving through certain sections during the day and that we're not making any stops. So that was, that was part of our plan. And fortunately we didn't have any bad experiences. Um, everywhere we went, we felt, you know, pretty, pretty safe and people treated us great. So it was, it was a really good experience, but we, we did want to be prepared. That's unacceptable to me that that's even something that you have to consider. I feel the same way. I felt, I felt when we even had that conversation, I was really annoyed and upset that that was even something that we had to think about. And we were especially concerned. We're like, okay, well, you know, what about after the election? What's, regardless of which way it went, we didn't know how people were going to respond. And we're like, we're going to be on the road, you know, when, when we get those results. What does that look like? But we, we just couldn't think of it because we couldn't control it, you know? Yeah. Well, this particular election was already so volatile. The mm-hmm. entire, like, zeitgeist of, the, of our, you know, sort of global community has changed. Um, yeah, for sure. And as, you know, as a white girl from Southern California, you, you know, I, I'm so aware of the privilege involved in, you know, I live in Texas now, which is a whole other monster, but I, you know, in being able to parent my children without, I have two sons, you know, and a daughter, but I have two sons, I don't ever have to talk to them about how they wear their hoodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I, I just... Uh, I I feel I I I'm wondering you know as what as a member of the you know 
non-person of color, no, person of non-color, none of that works, oh, the white community, <laughs> let me just, um, like, what, what can we do that doesn't feel condescending and, you know, it's like I see all of these initiatives that I feel are so sort of earnest. There's like the safety pin thing and there's the, not, not just obviously for immigrants, you know, it's a larger issue, but, and it just almost feels like that, the sort of well-intentioned of when you're sending, you know, cute handmade dolls to a country that doesn't have any food, mm. you know, mm-hmm. where the yeah. intention is there, but it's so misplaced that it's almost insulting. And I think that there are a lot of people in the sort of Caucasian community that feel that way, that like, you know, we like, what, how, how do we handle this? How do we do better? How do we actually help without like stepping on a turf that we have no right to even put a toe in? Mm. I think the best way is to not make assumptions and to do exactly what you're, you're doing is just asking. Cause I think sometimes people on, on the outside looking in, they say, okay, well, this is the problem. These, this is an idea. This is how we can solve that problem without talking to the people who are experiencing that problem. So, you know, it's almost, I see it as a design problem. You need to do the research and talk to the people that it actually affects Mm. to under, to really understand, you know, what, what can be done or what issues are at hand because only again, on the outside looking in, you, you think you can solve it or you think you have the answers, but it's not necessarily the way to go. A great example is um, I remember when I was living in Baltimore, there were a lot of cases where people were coming in. Well, you know, Baltimore, have a, they have a lot of communities, neighborhoods that are food deserts. So there were people coming in saying, oh, OK, well, let's bring let's have some gardens so people can actually just, you know, grow their own, their own, oh, my goodness, grow their own food. But then because of these community gardens, the, the rat infestation <laughs> grew. There's like oh, this huge goodness. problem with rats because you have this food that's just growing, you know, in these open environments. And um, it was, you know, there, there were these solutions, but it wasn't really taken into consideration how this would impact the community in that way. So I think that having conversations, asking questions and actually talking to people who are experiencing these challenges is a great place to start. Yeah. How do you use your art? I've noticed on your blog, you've got this amazing blog that's very curated. Um, it's Thank almost you. like an experience in and of itself. Not almost. It's de- it is an experience in and of itself. And you're doing. Um, you have a sort of like a melange of things where you you post yourself. You feature other people's art. You've got this really amazing project called Women Who Women Who Project, and it's an mm-hmm. interview series um, that highlights women of color who you know are inspiring. Um, and you you brought on a guest interviewer um, f- for this series. Uh, um, yes. Will you pronounce her name for me? Tanikia. Sure, Tanikia. Oh, Tanikia Award. Tanikia Award. <laughs> um, and they're just great. They're really great conversations. But you're also profiling artists and, you know, some fashion and just some really great stuff. Is this is this sort of one of the methods that you're using your creative voice to affect change? Definitely. I, and actually that, that, um, and you could say it either way, woman who project or woman who project. Um, so that actually came out of frustration 
So I was having a conversation with Tanikia, um, just <laughs> direct message on Instagram. And I was having this rant cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, like where I know these amazing women of color who are doing amazing work. Where are they being featured? Where are they being highlighted? Where are the spaces that celebrate them and talk about them as artists, talk about their work and not necessarily just about identity or, you know, being a black woman or a Latina. Um, so we're like, you know what, let's just use, you know, that was what my, my, uh, blog, my space had always been about. I'm like, Oh, let me just use that and feature more of what I want to see. So, you know, fly started from that place. I started it, um, in 2006. So 10 years ago, and it really was just a place where I shared inspiration and things that I was, you know, interesting to me. But also, I wasn't seeing women of color being highlighted. So I, I just started, you know, sharing people within my community, people that I was meeting. And it grew and grew. And then over the years, because of, you know, my transition from teaching full time and the, the book and everything, I, I really slowed down. Um, I, I didn't have or I wasn't making the time to post as often as I'd like. And I forgot that this had already been the space that did that thing that I was looking for. Mm. So I, and isn't that interesting? Like that yeah. again, <laughs> like we were talking about introspection. It was yes. there. It was there within your own creative self. For sure. But I have to say, Vicki, you know, sometimes it can be a little exhausting um, because sometimes you want someone else to do it, right? Because yes. you, you, you feel like <laughs> often I want someone else to do it. <laughs> You're like you want to you want to be able to go and see other people's perspective on you know who's doing amazing stuff or who's you know hot or killing it. Um, but I realize you know I I very much believe in you create what you want to see. So I'm like okay, well. For now, I guess I just have to I have to do it because this is what I want to see. I have I have to do it. Yeah, so you got to push up your sleeves and hope people stop. get on the train. Exactly. <laughs> the irony of the fact that I had that I had trouble with her name and the very first or the latest feature is of a woman who started girls with difficult <laughs> names is just frankly hilarious. <laughs> I really enjoy. But this you know week. what? Go ahead. I think. But you asked, right? So you, you said, how do you say it? And um, and you then you try to say it. And I think that's all it takes. I think people get really, and I, I get it too, because sometimes it's like you want to say people's names correctly and you don't want to embarrass them or embarrass yourself. But it really is just that simple, just, you know, how do you say it? And then trying and then being okay with making a mistake here and there, but um, finally figuring it out. Well, it's but like I going think, to another country as, you know, as an American and Americans, you know, <laughs> broad stroke, you know, generalization don't often speak more than one language and definitely not more than two. And so there's mm -hmm. a sense of entitlement often. But if you go to another country and you at least attempt to try, um, I found this in France, that they are so much more willing to then you know, meet you in the middle, or often they speak English because they're better educated right, in language. Right. I, I feel like it's the same thing just with almost anything with people. Like if you, if there's that willingness, again, that openness. Exactly. Which I guess is a vulnerability. Yeah, exactly. Because you, you look silly when you do something wrong, I guess. And so that might be part of it is opening yeah. yourself up a little bit for failure to help um, allow for the comfort of other. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and also refusing to try because I, I had a, a friend, I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this story. Um, but she, her name is Rahil and she introduced herself to someone and they had a hard time saying her name and they were like, Oh, well, is it okay if I call you Rachel? No, it's not okay. <laughs> sure. Like, can I call you Fred? Like, what <laughs> exactly. does that mean even? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? But that's, I mean, and her, her name isn't even that hard to say. Is it spelled that way? Is it spelled with an R? Not that it matters. You can't, you shouldn't say it how they don't want it, but is, I'm, I'm just wondering where they got Rachel from. I think, I, cause Rachel, I think Rahil is the Arabic version of Rachel. Okay. I think. Um, but still it's like Rahil is not hard to say at all. And even if it was, it's still not appropriate to like try to change somebody's name, but, um, yeah. So I think that's when it becomes, it's disrespectful offensive. and just yeah. offensive. Yeah, exactly. Because if you don't care enough to at least try, you're not invested in me and then you can't expect me to then therefore be invested in you, frankly. Exactly. Exactly. As a side note, I'm totally obsessed with these Amber Combs that you wrote about. Oh, um, I know. Too. I'm going to post a link in your show notes page of these combs because they are just stunning aren't they beautiful and you know all the ones that i want are sold out so i hope they um oh no i hadn't clicked through yet for that but they are so beautiful I'm, i want i want to hang them, them on really. the wall they're <laughs> yes. magnificent they're really beautiful well andrea i just have so enjoyed um our candid conversation i appreciate your openness um, and your willingness and i love your book becoming me it might actually spur me to get out of my head for a little bit and um, explore more myself so thank you so much for being here yes thank you so much for having me and thank you for your amazing questions I've, i really enjoyed our conversation for more information on andrea's illustrations journals coloring books and her fly blog just go to her show notes page at vickihowell.com craftish And while you're there, take a moment to post a comment letting us know your thoughts on how creativity can help heal or empower. All posting listeners will be entered to win one of Andrea's books, either Becoming Me, a work in progress, that's her latest one, or her other coloring book, I Love My Hair. Entries must be received by 10 p.m. Central on Wednesday, December 22nd. Thanks again to our sponsor, Makers Mercantile, who would like to give Craftish listeners free shipping site-wide. So if you need a last-minute gift or just some craft supplies, now is the time to shop. Just go to makersmercantile.com and use code VickiMakes at checkout. That offer is good through the end of 2016 and valid for U.S. orders only. Craftish is a Camp Bell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. Thank you so much for listening to the first season of the Craftish podcast. It is truly a passion project for me. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that go into the making of it by myself and my husband who does all of the post-production. So we really appreciate that you take an hour of time weekly out of your busy schedules to you know, just kind of be with us in this podcast. So if you haven't listened to all of them, I encourage you to go back and give the ones you've missed a listen. And if you like what you hear, if you please share them with friends, I'd really appreciate it. Word of mouth means everything in the podcast realm. And if you take a moment to rate or review us on iTunes, that would also be really great. It just helps people find us. If you have a suggestion of someone you'd like to hear on the show during 2017, we would love to know about it please email suggestions to podcast at vickiehowell.com. 
Until next season, have a peaceful holiday season filled with creativity, laughter, and love, and also wine. Breathe in, craft out. Bye.